Pfizer executive admits they didn't test the COVID vaccine before they rolled it out. FBI offered a million dollars of your money to a spy for information to stop Trump in 2016. MSNBC says abortion is fundamental to democracy functioning. Did PayPal just make a multi-billion dollar mistake also? How important are your constitutional rights when you are accused of a crime? All this and more on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 258 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Tuesday, October 11th, 2022. Well, I mean, it still is in Alaska and Hawaii. I can't say it's Wednesday the 12th yet because that's our first anniversary. And our first anniversary show is not ready yet. Anyway, just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Oh, my goodness. I never thought I would see the day. This is all over internet media, but I don't know if you have heard about it. Let's go to American Greatness, article by Deborah Hine, entitled Cheap Lie, EU Member of Parliament Calls Out Pfizer Exec After She Admits COVID Vaccine Was Never tested on preventing transmission. Can you believe this? Imagine the legal ramifications here. A Pfizer executive admitted to the European Parliament on Monday that the COVID-19 so-called vaccine was never tested during clinical trials on its ability to prevent transmission, exposing a key argument for the shots and vaccine passports as a lie. During a special committee hearing on COVID-19, Janine Small, president of International Developed Markets at Pfizer, was asked if the company tested its product on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market. Now, I want you to hear this. I've got to play this for you. This is just remarkable. Now, we start off with a guy named Rob Rose. 
He's a Dutch politician, a current member of the European Parliament. And um, first, he's talking to the camera about what just happened in the European Parliament. And this is what he says. If you don't get vaccinated, you're antisocial. This is what the Dutch Prime Minister and Health Minister told us. You don't get vaccinated just for yourself, but also for others. You do it for all of society. That's what I said. Today, this turned out to be complete nonsense. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport. The COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. Please watch the video until the end. Okay, now at this point, he speaks in Dutch for a couple of lines, and I'll just tell you what he says before he goes back to English. He says, but to you, Ms. Small, I have the following short question to which I would like to receive a clear response. Okay, and then he's going to speak in English. We'll speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? Now, he's got a heavy accent, so I hope you understand. He says, was the Pfizer vaccine tested for the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? Okay, here comes her response. If not, please say it clearly. Okay, if not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. So she said they didn't test it. They did not test the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, to see if it would stop the spread of the coronavirus before they introduced it to the market. Well, you know, several months ago, Deborah Burks, in her autobiography, said we knew the vaccines would not work before we rolled them out. All right, now we go back to Rob Rose, and uh, he wraps this up. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now, this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. All right. Um, I was going to say, because most people who listen to me are not on Twitter. They might be on Facebook. But Facebook would probably censor this. You're probably not going to be able to find it on Facebook. You can find it on Twitter. Or you can go over to AM Greatness. AMGreatness.com. Anybody can get on that, right? And just look for an article that begins with the words, Cheap Lie. And share it, share it, share it. I mean, 
Everybody who told us this is going to stop the spread of the coronavirus should be brought up on charges. Because that was based on nothing. And people lost their livelihoods, and some people lost their lives. Let me say it again for the West Coast audience. Let me say it again for the people up in the balcony, listening in the back. People lost their livelihoods, and some people lost their lives. Have you ever heard of sudden adult death syndrome before all this? Have you ever heard of little kids having heart attacks before this? We need to have Nuremberg-style trials. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. I was just following orders. That's not good enough, man. People need to be held accountable, starting with the heads of the pharmaceutical companies. Untold amount of people have lost their lives over this. I'm sorry, son. If you want to play high school football with us, you got to get vaccinated. Mom, Dad, I'm so sorry. He was such a nice boy. I'm I'm so sorry he had a heart attack and died. Yeah. Now, have you heard what the Surgeon General of the state of Florida came out and said? Sean Fleetwood has a brief article about it over the Federalist. Read the Florida Surgeon General's tweet about men's post-COVID vax death risk that Twitter tried to hide. In line with its typical pattern of suppressing the free exchange of ideas, Twitter's censorship regime went out of its way to temporarily remove a tweet from Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo over the weekend that contained a study highlighting the potential risks of giving young men the COVID jab. In the tweet which has now been restored. Ladapo links to a new press release from the Florida Department of Health, which provides readers with access to the Sunshine State's updated guidance for the mRNA COVID shots, as well as a study documenting an 80% percent increase in the relative incidence of cardiac related death among males 18 to 39 years old within 28 days following mRNA vaccination. Now, I think we should be alarmed at that, don't you? I think we should be alarmed about that. By the way, in case you're going, well, who is this Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo? He got his B.A. at Wake Forest. He got his M.D. and Ph.D. at Harvard. All right. Completed residency and fellowship in internal medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, teaching hospital at Harvard Medical School. He was a professor of medicine at NYU, 
and UCLA became acting Florida Surgeon General September of last year, was confirmed February of this year. DeSantis knows how to pick good people. So let me run this by you again. An 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related death among males 18 to 39 years old within 28 days following an mRNA vaccination. Does that concern you? It concerns me. Despite Dr. Ladapo's past experience as a physician and health policy researcher, the tech bros in Silicon Valley promptly removed the tweet which threatens the left's narrative on vaccine safety and efficacy from the site. While the tweet was ultimately restored Sunday morning, Twitter initially defended the post's removal by claiming it violated their company's coronavirus misinformation policies. Twitter stated, and I quote, Our current misleading information policies cover synthetic and manipulated media, COVID-19 and civic integrity. If we determine a tweet contains misleading or disputed information per our policies that could lead to harm, We may add a label to the content to provide context and additional information. In the analysis Dr. Ladapo released, males aged 18 to 39 were found to be at the highest risk for cardiac-related mortality after having received the COVID jab, with a study noting that, quote, the risk associated with mRNA vaccination should be weighed against the risk associated with COVID-19 infection. The study goes on to say COVID-19 vaccination was associated with a modestly increased risk for cardiac-related mortality 28 days following vaccination results from the stratified analysis for cardiac-related death following vaccination suggests mRNA vaccination may be driving the increased risk in males, especially among males aged 18 to 39. Risk for both all-cause and cardiac-related deaths was substantially higher 28 days following COVID-19 infection. And citing the analysis, Dr. Ladapo officially updated his office's guidance on the shots, now advising against giving them to 18 to 39-year-old males. Back in March, the Florida Surgeon General's office also issued similar guidance advising against offering the experimental jabs to children under 18 due to the limited risk of severe illness posed by the virus, the high prevalence of existing immunity, and the risk of myocarditis, among others. Had you heard about that? Are any of the other 49 state surgeon generals putting out this kind of warning? I'd be shocked if they are. In addition to Florida, public health entities in countries such as Germany, France, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and Norway have all recommended against the distribution of the Moderna COVID shots for individuals under the age of 30, with all of them citing the documented risk of heart inflammation among young people as justification. In the case of Denmark, the country's health authority recently updated its official guidance last month to where now only people who have reached the age of 50 and particularly vulnerable people 
will be offered vaccination. Well, you, you would think you would think that vulnerable people would be the exact kind of people that should not that should not receive the vaccination. Call me crazy. I've been called worse. Now, Ladapo himself has some thoughts on a on a thread over Twitter. He said, uh, and this is Monday morning. He said, I love the discussion that we've stimulated. Isn't it great when we discuss science transparently instead of trying to cancel one another? He said, I'm, I'm going to respond to the more substantive critiques. Number one, diagnosis codes for cardiac-related deaths are imperfect. His response, yes, but that is true for every subgroup we examined. Only in young men was the risk extremely high, and it was also increased in older men. Number two, critique. COVID test information was only available on death certificates, unquote. His response, no. We used all of our data, resources, test results, vaccine records, death records, to exclude individuals who had documented COVID-19 infection, as we write in the methods section. Number three, critique, the sample size is too small. His response, 3A, elevated cardiac risk was also found in older men, and there are thousands of deaths in this group. 3B, the total cardiac deaths meeting inclusion criteria among young men was 77, not 20, as has been going around the web. 3C, read the references about the method. Self-control case series tell us whether events, death, are occurring unusually close to an exposure, mRNA COVID vaccine, or whether their timing is due to chance. Even if the sample size was half of what it is, if events cluster after an exposure, that is valuable information about causation. And finally, is it really that hard to imagine that mRNA COVID-19 vaccines that increase myocarditis in young men 10 times, 20 times, or 30 times? And he says, see Karlstad et al., Journal of American Medical Association, Cardiology 2022. Is it really that hard to imagine that if those vaccines increase the myocarditis risk in young men by a factor of 10, 20, or 30, that they would also increase the risk of cardiac death in that age group? Of course it's not. We all know that. Wow. Now, one of the responses here is fascinating, and it's a, uh, a short video called Who is Brooke Jackson? The Whistleblower Story That Should Matter to Everyone. And they've got Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, and Albert Bourla, CEO of Pfizer. I think I should play this for you. Yeah, let's see what happens here. Who is actually carrying the risk and uh, the liability? That's what uh, 
That's what uh, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, is asking the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, who's actually carrying the risk, the liability. Most uh, countries, they indemnify them. Most countries, they indemnify them. Now, what does indemnify mean? To protect against damage, loss, or injury, to insure. In the U.S., it was always clearly indemnified, so they are taking uh, the liability if there are lawsuits, for example, against that. So the U.S. government protects Pfizer and the other pharmaceutical companies from liability. It's fascinating. They're just saying the, the quiet part out loud, just on a stage in front of an auditorium full of people with the World Economic Forum logo behind them. They're just announcing that if you have negative reaction from the vaccine, it's too bad because these governments have, have indemnified Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson. Here's more. So it's the government is taking so It is. I think that's behind us. Uh, everything <laughs> went okay, and now I think we can move on. The CEO of Pfizer is laughing. I think that's behind us. Everything went okay, and we can move on. As people are dropping like flies, young people. Young people. Okay, I guess at this point we're getting into the, uh, got about a minute 13 left on this video. Again, who is Brooke Jackson, the whistleblower story that should matter to everyone? Pfizer could be held liable for harm caused if their claims on safety and effectiveness were based on fraud. I didn't mean to be talking over Brooke Jackson. Here she is. My name is Brooke Jackson. I was fired in September of 2020 for being a whistleblower. And on the screen it says, in 2021, the British Medical Journal investigated and published a peer-reviewed article substantiating the fraud that Brooke Jackson witnessed as a regional director of Pfizer's clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccine. She's now suing Pfizer and their conspirators on behalf of the people of the United States. God bless her. It's egregious to a level that I haven't seen in any other case. That's her attorney, Robert Barnes. Maybe uh, Werner can talk about it in his experience as well. The way that our system is working right now. This is Warner Mendenhall, uh, another one of Brooke Jackson's attorneys. Is evil. It is against humanity. It is unprecedented that I've never seen before. This, is, this claim is brought by Brooke Jackson on behalf of all the people. Sometimes the government does a good job of advocating for the people. Sometimes it doesn't. Whatever it is. And it says Brooke's case could be life-changing for the vaccine injured. All right. Whatever it ends up being, billions, trillions, that belongs to the people and those that have been injured by this vaccine. And if there's anything successful, we'll go to them. Okay. So at this point on the screen, it says her story is being suppressed and censored. The public needs to know what's at stake. Please help share it successful we'll go to them the vaccine injured correct yes 
And the website, if you're interested, is IamBrookJackson.com. That sounds serious. Okay. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about and from Brooke Jackson. I have no question about that. Okay, at at this point, we want to say thank you once again to our advertisers who make it possible for us to do what we do week in and week out as we approach our first anniversary. Coming up, we still have to talk about how important are your constitutional rights when you're accused of a crime. Did PayPal just make a multi-billion dollar mistake? What's the deal with MSNBC saying abortion is fundamental to democracy functioning? And did you know the FBI offered a million dollars of your money to a spy for information to try to stop Donald Trump in 2016? A lot still to come up on episode 258 of the Doc Washburn Show. Thank you to our advertisers. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. 
It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thank you again so much to our advertisers, Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree. Not only our advertisers, but our doctors. Not only our doctors, but our friends at TurnMyPowerOn.com. We also say thank you so much to our buddy, Mitch Ward, proprietor of RedRiverYourWay.com. Got a great deal on the car over there. Great deal on a 10-year-old Honda Accord that runs like a top. Low mileage and uh, didn't have to pay a whole lot. Really good stuff. Now, Jesse Kelly is a great talk show host out of Houston, Texas. And he had some thoughts about the Wu flu, about the China virus. Out there on Twitter, he said, Pro tip, the friend or family member of yours who freaked out over COVID is the one who's going to turn you into the feds one day. Just remember who was who, because that was the great sorting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting responses. Somebody said, I would actually change the tense of your statement. Some of these family and former friends actually did turn you into the feds on the January 6th tip lines. The leads I saw were shocking and absurd, and the FBI was happy to carry their water. The sorting already began. Another guy says the majority of January 6ers were turned in by family. Distrust of family and neighbors is a pillar of communism. He said, I was turned in by my biological father's stepson. Wow. Just horrifying, isn't it? Horrifying. All right. um, I want to get to the FBI thing. Because this was stunning. What, the, the, the FBI offered a million bucks? That's right. Had you heard about this? Came out in the trial Tuesday. Daily Caller has it. CNN even had it. I can't believe CNN reported on this. Maybe things are finally changing over there with a the new boss. I just, I, I don't know, fam. I can't call it, but good grief. Daily Caller, Trevor Shackle. Has the article, FBI offered to pay Christopher Steele $1 million for proof corroborating dossier claims, FBI analyst says. Okay? According to CNN, FBI supervisory analyst Brian Auten testified Tuesday. The FBI 
offered in October 2016 to pay ex-British spy Christopher Steele $1 million for proof that could corroborate claims made in his dossier about then-candidate Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. You know, I've been saying that would be your and my money, our tax dollars, but I, I don't know. What how much of it might have come out of uh, a petty cash voucher at the Clinton Global Initiative? I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just speculating here. You know, we're just kind of thinking out loud, thinking outside the box, and maybe not that far outside the box. In his testimony, FBI supervisory analyst Brian Auten said Christopher Steele failed to prove the allegations from his dossier, never receiving the million dollars, and would not even divulge source names at the meeting. The potential payment was revealed during the criminal trial of Igor Danchenko, a Russian analyst and primary source behind information in the dossier. Now, of course, the dossier was a key source behind the FBI's investigation into the Donald Trump campaign for president for allegedly engaging in the 2016 election interference conspiracy with Russia. It was also a major foundation for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, warrant applications the FBI directed at former Trump campaign aide Carter Page so they could also spy on Trump. Special counsel John Durham indicted Igor Danchenko almost a year ago, November of last year, for allegedly making false statements to the FBI on five occasions between June and November 2017 concerning sources of information he gave to Christopher Steele's firm, Orbis Business Solutions, which subsequently ended up in reports to the FBI. Igor Danchenko was a paid source for the FBI from March 2017 to October of 2020. That was previously revealed in a court motion by John Durham. Durham, of course, was tapped. Says here in December 2020 to investigate the origins behind the FBI's Trump-Russia investigation, according to Politico. No, no, he, he he was tapped a lot earlier than that. Try at least a year and a half before that. I mean, what are they even talking about? December 1st, 2020, Attorney General Barr gave him the title of special counsel, but he was already, he'd already been investigating this for a year and a half. Anyway, neither the FBI nor attorney... Representing Danchenko immediately responded to the Daily Caller's request for comment. However, a lot of the very knowledgeable folks that I follow over in our little corner of Twitter did respond. The great Julie Kelly in American Greatness said, in response to the CNN, uh, CNN article, she said, I mean, you want to laugh at the idiocy of this corrupt clown show, except they're destroying lives she said and the guy who just testified is brian Auten, and she links to a tweet from katherine harridge now katherine harridge very good investigative reporter 
She's the Fox News for years. She's been over CBS News two or three years now. Catherine Herridge, back in July 25th on Twitter, said multiple highly credible FBI whistleblowers have come forward to senior Senate Republican Chuck Grassley alleging widespread effort to downplay or discredit negative information about the president's son, Hunter Biden, according to letters. Okay. And somebody responds here, FBI agent Brian Auten should be at the top of the list. You know, people to be concerned about. And this person links to Hans Monkey back in July, who said, this is just completely unbelievable. Auten, the same crooked FBI analyst who vetted the Carter Page warrant, drafted the phony intelligence community assessment, saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, concealed that Igor Danchenko had disavowed Christopher Steele and was also involved in the framing of General Michael Flynn. Really? Really? Yeah. And he links to... uh, Jerry Dunleavy over at the Washington, D.C. Examiner, again from July 25th, who says the officials tied to the FBI allegedly falsely labeling accurate information on Hunter Biden as being disinformation include Timothy Tebalt, potentially violating the Hatch Act for the anti-Trump social media posts, and Brian Auten, who was involved in Crossfire Hurricane. The thing I don't understand at this point so maybe Durham's not done. It's why somebody is deeply compromised as Brian Auten is putting this bombshell out there today that they offered Christopher Steele a million dollars. I mean, maybe... He's a cooperating witness with Durham. Maybe Durham's not getting ready to wrap it up. Maybe he will go for higher-ups. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've been sorely disappointed in Durham, and you had the great Cash Patel on the show late last week, and I asked him, and he said, no, I don't think Durham's done. He said, I know I've known Durham for years. Durham's a stand-up guy. He's a good guy, and I think this is going to go further. And I'm like, brother, I hope you're right. Because, see, that's what I always thought because I'd always heard good stuff about Durham. But I had asked Cash Patel quite pointedly um, Are you as disappointed as I am that it looks like John Durham is acting like the FBI? are innocent victims, you know? And he's just going after these peripheral characters. So you might want to look at that. I forget the uh, the name of the episode. What was it? Um, it was the one I did last Friday. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't remember. Maybe 
maybe 255, 254, 255, something like that. Maybe 254. Anyway, Julie Kelly continues about the million-dollar offer from the FBI to Christopher Steele. She said, and this is October 2016, the same month then-FBI Director James Comey and Assistant Attorney General Sally Yates signed off on the first FISA application for Carter Page using Steele and his dossier as their sources, knowing that it was all garbage because they offered Steele a million dollars to uh, verify it, you know, and he couldn't do it. It was all garbage. I mean, what does that tell you? So this guy over on Twitter who goes by Shipwreck Crew, he's got a real name. He, he's actual um, longtime federal prosecutor and now criminal defense attorney, and he is representing some of the January 6th political prisoners, and I can't remember his real name. Anyway, he says, so the Obama Justice Department was willing to pay $1 million to an investigator to prove Trump was sympathetic to Russian interests only weeks before an election? I have made this very point before, so what? What if the dossier was true? Trump had been nominated by a national party and was on every state's ballot. If elected and he altered U.S. policy towards Russia, so what? He said, why would that be of interest to the FBI? They do not make foreign policy. If the FBI was ordered by the president to adopt a more cooperative stance toward Russia, then the employees of the FBI would have been obligated to comply or quit, one or the other. The idea that a coterie of bureaucrats in the FBI thought that might be wrong and acted to prevent it is the scandal. If they didn't like the policy implications, the solution was for them to resign from the FBI and run for Congress where they could legitimately impact policy. Just stunning. What a cast of clowns. Now, the first response is somebody saying, the $1 million lie cost America her safety, security, and liberty. Not to mention the 40 other million and all others who lost their life savings under this hoax. Yeah, because, see, people had to spend a lot of money on lawyers, people who were targets of Robert Mueller, you know, who did his thing for almost two years. But Julie Kelly, in response to Shipwreck Crew, said he wasn't an investigator, talking about Christopher Steele. He was a political operative paid by the DNC and the Clinton campaign, and they knew it. And they knew it. Now, somebody along the line here, I can't remember who it was, said, I'll bet you the FBI didn't offer Tony Bobolinsky, a Biden business partner, a million dollars to corroborate the Hunter Biden laptop. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, no, they sure didn't. Now, Sean Langeal, producer of Fox News at Night, the uh, show that Shannon Bream hosted for years, late night, and now that she's doing uh, Fox News Sunday, Trace Gallagher has taken over. 
Sean Langille says, new during questioning for special counsel John Durham, Brian Auten, a supervisory counterintelligence analyst with the FBI, revealed the FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollars if he could corroborate allegations in the dossier, but that Steele could not do so. Auten repeatedly admitted under questioning from Durham that the FBI never got corroboration of the information in the Steele dossier, but used it in the initial FISA application and in three subsequent renewals anyway. And so everybody else is quoting CNN. Sean Langille is quoting Fox's own reporters. David Spunt, one of their correspondents based in D.C., And Jake Gibson, a Fox News Washington uh, DOJ producer. So the great Shem Horn responds, all this while Comey was lying to Congress, the media, and the American people. When he, Comey, stated that he warned President Trump not to ask him to investigate the dossier because it might make Trump look bad. If he did that, he should be in prison. And he links a Washington Post article. Here's how the corrupt Washington Post reported that story. James Comey's memoir, Trump fixates on proving lewd dossier allegations false. He also has a screenshot from James Comey's ABC News interview. Comey said that Trump then told him, I may order you to investigate that. Comey said he preached caution. I said, sir, that's up to you, but you'd want to be careful about that because it might create a narrative that we're investigating you personally, and second, it's very difficult to prove something didn't happen. But they were investigating him personally, weren't they? Yes, they were. Yes, they certainly were. So Julie Kelly says, this is absolute proof. Comey knew the dossier was garbage, but he met with Trump on January 6, 2017 to warn him the Russians had compromised in other words, compromising intelligence, including the P-tape. That was the outrageous allegation that Trump had hired Russian prosecutes to pee on a bed in the presidential suite where Barack and Michelle had stayed a month earlier. One of the stupidest things I have ever heard of in my life. But the FBI acted like they thought it might be true. So again, Julie Kelly says this is absolute proof. Jim Comey knew the dossier was garbage, but he met with Trump on January 6, 2017 to warn him the Russians had compromised, including the P-tape, and Obama knew Comey would brief Trump on it. Then she says, oh boy, and this, this is your money headline right here. She says, January 6, 2017 was the real attempted insurrection. No, no, not January 6, 2021, January 6, 2017. That was the real attempt at insurrection. That was the real attempt at preventing the peaceful transfer of power from Obama to Trump right there, January 6, 2017. And they were all in on it. They were all in on it. Now, the great Bonchi over at Red State, he said, I know no one cares anymore, but today we learned that the FBI tried to use taxpayer money to pay a foreign spy a million dollars dollars to deliver campaign destroying information on Donald Trump prior to the 2016 election. That is so much worse than Watergate. 
Yeah, it is. Sure is. More from Julie Kelly. She says, so on top of the money Christopher Steele was collecting in 2016 from the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign, Oleg Deripaska and the FBI, as a confidential human source, several FBI officials offered him a million dollars to prove the dossier allegations were true. What a gig. And this is after Steele and Glenn Simpson did their D.C. private media blitz to generate interest in the dossier and Steele as an anonymous source. Oh, yeah, they're talking all these D.C. media types off the record behind the scenes. She said they all belong in jail, every single official and lawmaker responsible for this conspiracy. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Boy, that's something right there. But have you heard about it anywhere else? Now, conservative talk radio may be talking about it. I don't have time to listen to it anymore because I'm always doing show prep for this. But Hans Monkey over the EpicTimes.com, he weighed in. He said, how come Horowitz, now remember, Horowitz, the inspector general of the DOJ, the guy who does the reports, right? Um, the guy who's supposed to get to the bottom of all this stuff, right? Michael Horowitz. How come DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz, Robert Mueller, who ran investigation for almost two years, the intelligence community, and the Senate Intel Committee never mentioned that the FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollars to provide evidence of his collusion allegations and that Steele wasn't able to and instead became uncooperative. Hans Monkey says, Larry Beach, who on Twitter goes by McCabe's Porsche on blocks, Larry Beach makes a great point. If FBI offered a million to Steele to corroborate, how much did Steele offer Danchenko to corroborate? This is another dog that didn't bark. Well, I wonder, I wonder if we're going to find out about that. I don't know. I just, uh, just have a feeling. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe Durham has a couple more up his sleeve. Because nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw this coming. Um, Regina Murad over on Twitter says Durham setting up only because of Danchenko's lies was the reason the FBI spied on an innocent American citizen really pushing this point to the jury yeah but see the FBI knew that he was lying so Larry Beach said he should rephrase that only because of Danchenko's lies was the FBI able to play the plausible deniability and we were duped card to go ahead and do what they desperately wanted to do anyway. See, that's the thing. And if Durham's going to be legit, 
He's finally, finally going to have to admit that. Okay? Now, independent journalist Toria Brooks says the FBI relies on human sources, and when they lie, it affects the investigation. The FBI should have taken certain actions, but they also may have covered up the defendant's lies. The jury must decide whether Danchenko lied to the FBI and whether those lies were protected. And then Hans Maki said, Mark the day. This is the first time ever that someone in the U.S. government, in this case the Justice Department's Michael Keelty, has formally admitted that the FBI might have covered up dossier lies. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was Fool Nelson. Fool Nelson was the guy who said, um, my guess is the FBI didn't offer Tony Bobolinsky a million dollars to corroborate the laptop. All right, the great great Jeff Carlson over the Epic Times. Let's see what he says about this because he's always strong. Okay, he's responding to Aaron Mate over the Gray Zone News who says, Steele FBI meeting on October 3rd, 2016, FBI's first surveillance warrant on Carter Page was then filed 18 days later, October 21st. That means that after the FBI offered Steele a million dollars to prove his dossier, which he couldn't do, the FBI filed a surveillance warrant based on the dossier anyway. Jeff Carlson says FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe said no surveillance warrant would have been sought from the FISA court without the Steele dossier information. Jeff Carlson says the FBI has lied or obscured facts on virtually everything that has been explored by researchers. Imagine what we don't know. Another quote, FBI supervisory analyst Brian Auten testified that Steele never got the money because he could not prove the allegations. Again, Jeff Carlson says the FBI tried to bribe Steele when Steele couldn't produce, they used his dossier anyway to get the original FISA on page along with three renewals. To make matters even worse, despite knowing Steele couldn't produce, the FBI attached a two-page summary of Steele's dossier to the intelligence community assessment, which was briefed to Obama on January 5th and 6th of 2017. You know, just two weeks before Trump's inauguration. And the FBI maintained contact with Steele via Bruce Orr. In the days following the firing of Comey by Trump, McCabe even sought to directly re-engage with Steele using Bruce Orr as a conduit. I'm telling you, I mean, Durham is going to have to prosecute some of these bigwigs. If not, what is all this about? Now, again, let me go back to something else that, that, that came up during the first day of uh, the Igor Danchenko trial today from independent journalist Toria Brooks. FBI agent Helson, the handling agent, conducted interviews with Danchenko. 
FBI agent James will show when Danchenko wanted someone to call him. He'd tell them exactly which phone app to use. The information that Danchenko lied about led to a surveillance warrant against Carter Page. FISA, which stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, warrant is the exact term. Using this tool, the FBI can monitor calls and emails in real time of individuals who are believed to work for foreign governments. Carter Page was never charged with any crime. The FBI has an obligation to inform the court of anything that may be wrong or misrepresented in FISA warrants. The government and the FBI surveil Carter Page for nearly a year. Danchenko's lies about Sergio Millian affected counts two through five of the indictment. On June 15, 2017, Danchenko concealed the source of the info and denied speaking to Charles Dolan. However, his communications tell another story. August 19, 2016, Danchenko asked Dolan to give him anything he had on Paul Manafort. Then the info that Dolan provided ended up in Steele's report two days later. Why was Danchenko's lie about Charles Dolan important? Dolan was the only current U.S.-based source of the Steele dossier. June 15, 2017, Danchenko lied to the FBI Special Agent Helson and said he did not speak to Dolan about anything specific that was in the dossier. However, on two separate occasions in June and October 2016, Charles Dolan was with Danchenko in Moscow. Dolan maintained a relationship with many Russian officials while he worked in public relations as a longtime DNC operative from Jimmy Carter's administration to the present day. Oh, my goodness, that is a long time. Now, what we're seeing here is Toria Brooks uh, relating to us the government's opening statement. Here's a little bit more. You'll hear testimony from four FBI agents. What were Dolan's connections for the dossier? FBI employee Brittany Herzog, who prepared a lengthy report. Danchenko and Dolan's connections with Russian sources. Kevin Helson, his handling agent. The FBI never interviewed Charles Dolan, despite Helson wanting to interview Dolan. The FBI relies on human sources and when they lie, it affects the investigation. The FBI should have taken certain actions, but they also may have covered up the defendant's lies. Wait, 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 wait. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. Durham is saying this in the opening statement? Whoa, whoa, maybe he's not through. Have you heard this anywhere else? Anybody else aware of this? All of a sudden back going, well, Durham's just rolling over for the FBI and the DOJ and he's not going to do anything? In his opening statement, he says, the FBI should have taken certain actions, but they also may have covered up the defendant's lies. Really? Maybe he's not through after all. Maybe Cash Patel had something. Well, he's a lot smarter than me. Anyway, the jury must decide whether Danchenko lied to the FBI and whether those lies were protected. Oh, my goodness. That's remarkable. That is just remarkable. So, um, so Larry Beach says, boom, as called Kevin Helson, the affiant on the BS Butina indictment was also 
Igor Danchenko's handler. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if maybe Durham is planning on just burning the whole thing down. Metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, this is really quite something. Because Larry Beach says, Durham might have a Helsin problem unless his intention is just to burn the whole blanking thing to the ground. Helsin being the guy who wanted to interview Charles Dolan, but the higher-ups wouldn't let him. So as Durham said in his opening, his opening statement, maybe the FBI was helping cover up some of this stuff. See, because we've all been thinking that he's just looking the other way on the FBI's malfeasance, right? We all pretty much gave up on it, right? Oh, man. That's remarkable. I'm, I'm going to be... I got to make sure I start following um, this lady that was just doing the blow by blow on the on the opening statement from from the government because I, I I haven't seen this anywhere else. Have you? I mean, I look. I'm not trying to engage in irrational exuberance here. I'm not trying to get your hopes up, but I'm just looking at the implications of what Durham said in his opening statement, which I have heard no one else report on anywhere. Okay? I mean, nobody else anywhere. So maybe Cash Patel had something. We'll see. We'll see. All right, so um, ever since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, it's been very much in the news. And... um, Democrats, I was going to say, are hoping and praying, but, you know, who do they get to pray to? You can't be pro-abortion and be a Christian. And the God of the Bible is the real God. So Democrats are hoping and sending out positive vibes that somehow or another, Roe being overturned will resound in some victories for them in the ballot box November 8th, I don't think they will. So, did you hear about the MSNBC pundit claiming that abortion is fundamental to democracy functioning? Did you hear about that? Uh, the Postmillennial has article on it. A lot of conservative websites did articles on it. I looked this woman up because I'm wondering, who is this, you know? And her name is Lauren Leader. She was on Monday's episode of The Morning Joke on MSNBC, Joe Scarborough. Lauren Leader, I was just trying to figure out what is her deal. Well, on LinkedIn, it says she's an executive advisor on diversity, public affairs, engagement, and communications, and CSR at Chivy Advisors. Also, co-founder and CEO of All In Together, a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to women's civic education and participation. And you're like, okay, 
how do you make a living, though? I'm like, oh, wait, a nonprofit probably gets all kinds of government money. So I go back and I go back and I go back, and she, uh, she worked at Deloitte as an executive advisor, human capital management practice. A lot of useless stuff going on here, it looks like to me. I go back. I keep going back. She was a human resources generalist at Pfizer for over three years, from 01 to 04. And guess what MSNBC is not going to tell you? They're not going to tell you. Oh, by the way, you used to you work for Pfizer for over three years, didn't you? Yeah, that was that company that had to pay the largest fine The largest federal fine for uh, fraud, what, $2.3 billion in 09? I mean, they're as pure as a driven snow now, but, but yeah. So, anyway, I think you need to hear what she had to say with, uh, with Mika and Joe on the, the MSNBC morning show. And the backdrop to that candidacy is uh, women losing the right to an abortion for the first time in 50 years. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the rollback of women's rights here is very concerning and it is tied. And I think, look, we many of us understand how profound the rollback you know, of abortion rights after Dobbs is for women's autonomy and ability to thrive in this nation. What I think we talk less about or think less about is what that does to undermine democracy, mm-hmm. that ultimately women's full and equal participation in society at every level including bodily autonomy, is fundamental to democracy functioning. So she is one of these corporate shills delighted to work for corporations who um, will be happy to pay for you to go get an abortion out of state if you have to. Much rather do that than... uh, and give you paid maternity leave because they want you to get back to work as quickly as possible instead of raising a family. So that's what they're all about. And I would take you now to Daniel Greenfield's article over Jihad Watch called The FBI's Double Standard on Abortion. Last month, the Mother and Unborn Baby Care Center, a pregnancy center in Southfield, Michigan, was vandalized, causing thousands of dollars in damages. Graffiti left behind, reading, If abortion isn't safe, neither are you, comma, Jane, linked the attack to Jane's Revenge, a leftist pro-abortion domestic terrorist group that is believed to be responsible for as many as 50 attacks on pregnancy centers and pro-life groups. Southfield, Michigan police notified the FBI, which refused to comment on the case. After 18 attacks, directly claimed by Jane's revenge over a period of six months, the FBI has made zero arrests. But while under Biden, the feds have shown no interest in a national campaign of leftist terrorism, the FBI has been swift to come after abortion opponents. The same month as a Southfield attack, an FBI team of 25 armed agents pounded on the door of an anti-abortion activist in Pennsylvania 
who has been accused of shoving a planned parented escort. A nationwide campaign of domestic terrorism didn't trigger a single arrest, but a shove brought heavily armed men in over a dozen vehicles to a suburban home. The FBI has claimed that the number of personnel and vehicles widely reported as being on scene that day is an overstatement and that his tactics were professional. The actual professional tactic would have been to ask the gentleman in question to turn himself in. But under Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland, the DOJ has engaged in a campaign of political intimidation. Biden's DOJ put out a statement about the incident by his nominee, Jacqueline C. Romero, who is touted as the first woman of color in the first LGBTQIA plus person to serve as U.S. attorney. And the statement said, violating the FACE Act by committing a physical assault is a serious crime for which the FBI will work to hold offenders accountable. That's from Jacqueline McGuire, special agent in charge of the FBI's Philadelphia division who had been featured in Women's History Month. The FACE Act, introduced by Senator Ted Kennedy, who had killed a woman himself, some said may have been carrying his child, and the first known example of a senatorial underwater abortion means that the FBI, no, 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 you're not going to, no, you're not going to cancel me. You're not going to censor me. Mary Jo Kopechny is unavailable for comment. Means that the FBI will come pounding on doors over a shoving incident at an abortion clinic, but pregnancy centers can be torched across the country without a word. On paper, the FACE Act also protects pregnancy centers. But the extremely differing enforcement standards by Biden's DOJ and the FBI make it all too clear that it does not. Also in September, Christopher Moschinke, a Franciscan friar who was already serving time on state charges for occupying the waiting room of the New York abortion clinic, was hit with face federal charges by the Biden administration for padlocking the gates of an abortion clinic and then laying his body in front of the gate, blocking vehicles from entering the health center's parking lot. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not a health center. They kill people there. It's not a health center. Now, environmentalist protesters routinely lie down in the street to block traffic. No one sends in the feds after them. They occupy government buildings. They don't go to prison. But Moschinke's actions were illegal, right? But leftist protesters routinely engage in the same kind of behavior, locking and blocking entrances and call it civil disobedience. There are few consequences, if any, for their behavior. And no pro-abortion protesters rallying outside pregnancy centers have faced face act charges, let alone aggressive FBI raids on their homes. But Biden's DOJ keeps using the FACE Act to target pro-life protesters outside abortion clinics while issuing pro-abortion political statements that make its political agenda clear. Philip Selinger, another Biden nominee and a leading Democrat fundraiser, celebrated a FACE Act campaign against a street evangelist by declaring, and I quote, access to reproductive health care is a fundamental right. Individuals must be able to access facilities like the Englewood Clinic to make decisions about their own bodies, unquote. Now, this was not a legal statement by a U.S. attorney, but a political statement by an aspiring Democrat politician 
abusing federal law enforcement authority. But Selinger was just echoing Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland, who had responded to the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling by attacking the court for having, quote, eliminated an established right that has been an essential component of women's liberty for half a century and announcing that the DOJ strongly disagrees with the court's decision. Attorney General Garland went even further in his insurrection against the Constitution and the Supreme Court by warning that he would employ the FACE Act to protect health care providers and individuals seeking reproductive health services in states where those services remain legal. That's a quote, by the way. So Biden's own Berea. Berea was uh, Stalin's head of the secret police, Soviet Union. Famously said, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. Biden's own Berea clearly meant only one kind of service, the kind that ends a child's life. The DOJ's Reproductive Rights Task Force has weaponized the FACE Act under Vanita Gupta, a leftist veteran of the ACLU and NAACP, and racked up charges against anti-abortion protesters. Since the attacks on pregnancy centers are being investigated under FACE Act violations, it is quite likely they're being routed to the DOJ's abortion task force. And the abortion task force's response would be to cheer on Jane's revenge. The lack of trust has become so severe that Reverend James Harden, the head of a pregnancy center in New York, has filed suit against the FBI to return surveillance footage from the attack. The FBI took the footage but has refused to, to share it with Compass Care, the victimized clinic. According to Reverend Harden, the video shows license plates and other identifying footage, and yet, after over 100 days, the FBI has made no arrests and refuses to turn over the video. Pastor Harden charged, they know who these people are, they're choosing not to make arrests. Meanwhile, local authorities claimed to be worried that releasing the video would play into the hands of right-wing, quote, nut jobs out there with guns and AK-47s bombing and killing people, unquote. Late last month, the FBI canceled a visit meant to look into the firebombing of the clinic. Even while leftist pro-abortion ter- terrorists continue vandalizing and firebombing pregnancy centers, Democrat politicians at the federal and state level have targeted those same centers with legislation meant to shut them down in an effort to achieve the same terroristic goals. In L.A., Democrats are trying to impose a $10,000 fine for anyone who claims to have been misled into thinking that pregnancy centers also provide baby terminating services. A similar attempt in California had already been struck down by the Supreme Court years ago. Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced the Stop Anti-Abortion Disinformation Act, which tries to use the Federal Trade Commission to target pregnancy centers. Senator Mark Warner and House Democrats demanded that Google go even further in censoring pregnancy centers from its search results. Jane's Revenge, or whichever combination of activists are operating under that name, is just the direct action arm of a leftist movement that is coordinating a campaign against pro-life groups. And the Biden administration is using its control over the DOJ and the FBI to implement it 
ignoring violence by its political allies while ruthlessly going after acts of peaceful civil disobedience. Under Merrick Garland, the DOJ has become the enforcement arm of the left. Justice can only return to the Department of Justice when Garland and the other cronies have left the building. That is the great Daniel Greenfield over at Jihad Watch. The article is entitled, The FBI's Double Standard on Abortion. Now, I had something to say about this. Matter of fact, it is my pinned tweet on Twitter. Your pinned tweet means that that's the first one that people see when they go to your Twitter profile. So let me say this about that. Now, I was responding to a guy named Jim Squires. Jim is a write-in Democrat candidate for Congress in Texas. So obviously he has a few screws loose. In my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it, he says, if you're a man and a woman becomes pregnant on your account, she will be forced to give birth and you will be forced to help pay for raising the child. The average cost of raising a child is $286,000. Don't kid yourself. Abortion rights are a man's issue. Vote blue or pay, men. So I had to respond to that. I said, Jim Squires says the quiet part out loud. Pro-abortion men would rather pay to have their children murdered than pay for 18 years of child support. Just ask Nathaniel Elijah Dixon. That's the guy arrested for uh, killing his girlfriend for not aborting their child. Just ask Nathaniel Elijah Dixon, Emmanuel Duane Coble, another guy arrested for the same thing, Ray Carruth, former Carolina Panthers NFL football player who went to prison for conspiring to murder his baby's mother, Jeffrey Tubin. Quite public that the CNN guy had a long-term affair with a co-worker while he was married. She got pregnant, and he tried to coerce her into having an abortion. Stephen Tyler. Stephen Tyler, Aerosmith, many, many years ago, had a 15-year-old girlfriend that uh, he had somehow gotten legal custody of and got her pregnant and made her have an abortion. Even ask Hunter Biden. Now look, you realize the fact that he denied paternity even though he knew he was the child's father. You realize the fact that Joe and Jill Biden refused to even acknowledge they had this grandchild who's now, what, three or four years old in Batesville, Arkansas? Of course they're furious that she wouldn't have an abortion. So, yeah, it's always been a man's issue. It's never been about women's rights. It's always been about men trying to exert their power over women they see as sex objects. And then if they impregnate them, instead of having to pay for 18 years of child support, and for that matter, having to pay for a messy divorce if they happen to be married to somebody else, 
They just want to give the woman however much money the abortion costs and just be done with it. And so many people don't realize that. So many people have no idea that that is the case, but that is the case. I mean, you want to talk about the patriarchy? You want to talk about white supremacism? Planned Parenthood. All right, so. Um, PayPal. Let's talk about PayPal. My friend Robert Spencer over Jihad Watch has a story about PayPal and what a story it is. They probably lost billions of dollars in the last few days. And it's, it's all their fault. Over Jihad Watch, article entitled, PayPal did not back down, still threatens $2,500 fines for promoting what they call hate and intolerance. He said the story was shocking. As PJ Media's Rick Moran stated Saturday, the financial services company PayPal announced a controversial policy to deduct up to $2,500 from the accounts of users who spread what they call misinformation. But as the news of this astonishing plan circulated far and wide, PayPal experienced a swift backlash in the form of a blizzard of account cancellations and quickly backed down, claiming that the announcement went out in error. They said PayPal is not finding people for misinformation, and this language is never intended to be inserted in our policy. Robert Spencer says that's terrific, or would be if it weren't for the fact that PayPal's current acceptable use policy still threatens $2,500 fines per infraction for promoting what they call hate and intolerance, language the left regularly uses to characterize and demonize speech that is critical of its insane policies. Eugene Volok pointed out Sonny that PayPal's acceptable use policy which was last updated September 20th, 2021, warns the unfortunate PayPal user that, quote, you must adhere to the terms of this acceptable use policy, unquote, or else. Again, quoting now, violation of this acceptable use policy constitutes a violation of the PayPal user agreement and may subject you to damages, including liquidated damages of $2,500, for violation which may be debited directly from your PayPal accounts as outlined in the user agreement. See Restricted Activities and Holds section of the PayPal user agreement. So click on that Restricted Activities and Holds section and you'll find a long list of you must not, including the expected prohibitions of fraud, selling counterfeit goods, and the like. Okay, well, that's all well and good. <clears throat> but included on the list of things you must not do is, quote, Provide false, inaccurate, or misleading information, unquote. False, inaccurate, or misleading in the eyes of whom? 
Why, if PayPal's leftist hall monitors, of course, and no one else, including the person PayPal accuses, quote, If we believe that you've engaged in any of these activities, we may take a number of actions to protect PayPal, its customers, and others at any time in our sole discretion, unquote. Yeah, their sole discretion. Nobody else's discretion. You will have no appeal, no recourse, no opportunity to present your side of the story. And among the prohibited activities listed on the acceptable use policy page of PayPal, you'll find forbidden, quote, the promotion of hate, violence, racial, or other forms of intolerance that is discriminatory or the financial exploitation of a crime, unquote. No problem, eh? You've never engaged in or ever planned to engage in any promotion of hatred, violence, or intolerance. So you're in the clear, right? Wrong. Leftists routinely accuse patriots of promoting hate. Wanting a secure southern border is promoting hate as far as they're concerned. Not wanting to see our schools become platforms for genuinely hateful and false race grievance propaganda is promoting hate as far as they're concerned. Disagreeing with the leftist dogma that Islam is a religion of peace, well, that's promoting hate as far as they're concerned. Not believing that January 6th was an insurrection or that Donald Trump is a traitorous Russian puppet, oh, of course, that would be promoting hate. And so what PayPal's still in force, acceptable use policy is saying, is that at PayPal's sole discretion, it can decide to start finding wrong thinkers and taking thousands of dollars from your account for the sole reason that you don't tow the left's political line. PayPal backed down on finding you for spreading, quote, misinformation, unquote. But few people seem to have noticed at all that it still threatens to find you for what they call hate and intolerance. Don't like drag queens sexualizing primary school children? If a PayPal walk decides that's intolerance, you could be out $2,500. And remember, that's just for one infraction alone. If you dare to express your dissent more than once, you could be in to PayPal for tens of thousands of dollars. Can they do this? Will they do this? That depends on who wins the game of judicial roulette. Will a case challenging this get heard by a judge appointed by Obama or Biden? Or by one whom Trump appointed? PayPal's acceptable use policy is one indication of why leftists are so avid to pack the Supreme Court and so incandescently enraged with Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Give the left a Supreme Court majority, and the ruling will come that PayPal is a private company that need not be bound by First Amendment considerations and is free to put political pressure on its users however it may wish to do so. It's certainly time to ditch PayPal, but make no mistake, PayPal is not alone in this. They're just out front on it. Before too long, every one of the social media giants and financial services will have similar policies unless there comes to be such a change in the American customer base that these massive corporations see that woke fascism simply isn't profitable for them 
as tens of thousands of people or more stop using their services. That part is up to us. That is the great Robert Spencer. The article is at Jihad Watch entitled PayPal Did Not Back Down, Still Threatens $2,500 Fines for Promoting Hate and Intolerance, and it's also over PJ Media. And uh, you can get it from either place. But I just thought I should update you on that because I haven't had a chance to talk about it recently. Okay, now, what about your constitutional rights? If you are charged with a crime, what about your constitutional rights? I think they're very important. Do you? I mean, Everybody's constitutional rights are important. Some people aren't going to be too happy about this one. But the Constitution is muy importante. All right. Scott Johnson over at powerlineblog.com has a little article called In the Chauvin Appeal. Derek Chauvin could not afford an attorney to appeal his convictions in the case of George Floyd. Chauvin's insurance did not extend to appeals, and the Minnesota Supreme Court denied him a public defender. Scott Johnson says, although I thought Chauvin could not have received a fair trial in Hennepin County, Minnesota, it looked like he wouldn't be able to raise the issue on appeal either. He says, I put out the call on Powerline for for some members of the Minnesota Bar to represent Derek Chauvin on appeal. In the best tradition of the American legal profession, my friend Bill Mormon, M-O-H-R-M-A-N, answered the call. Derek Chauvin's legal defense fund is here at Give, Send, Go, and he has a link there in case you want to chip in a few bucks. He says, I spoke to Bill this morning about the appeal. The state's brief was written by a team of lawyers led by Neil Katyal, volunteering his and his firm's services to the prosecution of Chauvin. Now, Neil Katyal is easily one of the most prominent appellate lawyers in the United States. He says, I asked Bill if he didn't feel like he was going up against Goliath. He laughed, which I interpreted in the affirmative. He said he thought that, quote, everyone is entitled to an attorney representing him. Unquote. He added, if we're getting away from that in this country, we're in big trouble. And that's true. Briefing of the appeal was completed last week. Bill anticipates oral argument will be scheduled before a panel of the Minnesota Court of Appeals in January. He says, I should note that they are elected judges who must be cognizant of the consequences of decision requiring retrial at a venue outside Hennepin County. It wouldn't be pretty. The Hennepin County District Court page on the Chauvin case, he links to it. It affords access to each of the appellate briefs. He links to all that stuff. He says, virtually every time I wrote about the trial on powerlineblog.com, I noted the riots that preceded the trial the riots that occurred during the trial, and the concrete and barbed wire construction around the courthouse that gave visible form 
to the lynch mob atmosphere of the proceedings. National Guard troops were stationed outside the courthouse, along with two armored personnel carriers. Security concerns were such that the jurors assembled at an undisclosed location each morning during the trial and were driven to and from the courthouse by Hennepin County, Minnesota sheriff's officers in unmarked vans. The Minneapolis Star Tribune reported the unprecedented effort aimed at protecting jurors from danger and outside influence cost almost $22,000 in van rentals alone. One more thing. Governor Tim Walz began deploying National Guard troops around Minneapolis and St. Paul as early as Wednesday, April 14th, 2021, before jury sequestration in the event riots occurred after the verdict. As Bill puts it on page 29 of Appellant's Brief, post-verdict should be translated as in the unlikely event of a not guilty verdict. Everyone in his right mind understood the secondary effects of a not guilty verdict. Bill does a good job of leading with the pretrial publicity, security issues, and other events that precluded a fair trial of even being possible. Bill relies on the two-tier analysis set forth in the United States Supreme Court's skilling case to argue that prejudice should have been presumed under the circumstances of this case. He's talking about skilling versus United States. And that was a Supreme Court case from 2010. And um, fascinating case, but anyway... He says, turning to the state's brief, this statement leaps out at me on page 17. The state says, the United States Supreme Court has likewise cautioned that a presumption of prejudice applies only in the extreme case, such as those involving kangaroo court proceedings, bedlam, a carnival atmosphere, or a disturbing lack of judicial serenity, and they quote from the Skilling case. Scott Johnson concludes by saying, again, that is the state speaking in respondent's brief on the law applicable to Derek Chauvin's Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial under controlling case law. This is me speaking. If this wasn't the extreme case, there never was one and there never will be one. And that's it. That's the end of the article. I commend it to you. Scott Johnson over PowerlineBlog.com, article entitled In the Chauvin Appeal, C-H-A-U-V-I-N. You know, I try to give you stuff here that I'm fairly certain you're not going to get anywhere else. I'm thankful for this opportunity. And I try to um, do my best to bring you everything I possibly can that I just think a lot of times you're not hearing anywhere else. And I appreciate the opportunity. I really do.
Um, so one of the things that really surprises me is when there are updates in the Mar-a-Lago case and hardly anybody talks about it. And I don't know why, because it's kind of a big deal, you know? So let me tell you the latest. Um, Shannon Bream, Bill Mears, Brooke Singman over at Fox News have this article, Mar-a-Lago Probe. DOJ asks Supreme Court to deny Trump request to block his review of classified records. And this is from late afternoon, Tuesday, October 11th. So this is pretty new. Justice Department on Tuesday asked that the U.S. Supreme Court deny former President Trump's request to block the DOJ from continuing its review of classified documents seized during the FBI's unprecedented raid of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Trump's attorneys last week elevated the former president's legal battle to the Supreme Court requesting that Justice Clarence Thomas, who has jurisdiction over the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, vacate the stay by lower court that allowed the DOJ to review classified records taken in August from Mar-a-Lago instead of court-appointed Special Master Raymond Deary. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon issued an injunction against the DOJ's use of the 100 documents purportedly marked as classified to be used for investigative purposes. The 11th Circuit overturned Cannon's order and prevented Special Master Deary from reviewing those materials. The panel had limited Judge Deary's review to only the non-classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Trump's legal team asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene, but the Justice Department, in a filing on Tuesday, argued that the Court of Appeals correctly held that it had appellate jurisdiction to review and stay the portion of the September 5th order that requires the government to turn over the documents bearing classification markings for special master review. Yeah, it's neat you got Shanna Breen writing something like this because she's a lawyer and she gets it, you know. It's helpful for us. The Justice Department argued that even if there were some doubt on that score, Trump certainly cannot establish the clear error required to justify the relief he seeks, particularly because he does not acknowledge, much less attempt to rebut, the Court of Appeals' conclusion that the district court's order was a serious and unwarranted intrusion on the executive branch's authority to control the use and distribution of extraordinarily sensitive government records. In its filing, the Justice Department said the application should be denied. Now, Trump's legal team has the opportunity to file a written legal reply, which the high court will consider and later issue an order. The decision could come as early as the end of this week, but Trump's legal team in their initial filing to the U.S. Supreme Court argued that the unprecedented circumstances presented by this case, an investigation of the 45th president of the United States by the administration of his political rival and successor, 
compelled the district court to acknowledge the significant need for enhanced vigilance and to order the appointment of a special master to ensure fairness, transparency, and maintenance of the public trust. All right. The filing continues. That appointment order is simply not appealable on an interlocutory basis and was never before the 11th Circuit. Nonetheless, the 11th Circuit granted a stay at the special master order, effectively compromising the integrity of the well-established policy against piecemeal appellate review and ignoring the district court's broad discretion without justification. Trump's legal team added that the unwarranted stay should be vacated as it impairs substantially the ongoing time-sensitive work of the special master. The filing continues. Moreover, any limit on the comprehensive and transparent review of materials seized in the extraordinary raid of a president's home erodes public confidence in our system of justice. Now, Justice Department last month in its 11th Circuit filing is working to appeal Judge Cannon's decision to appoint a special master altogether, arguing that it is unable to examine records taken from Trump's Florida estate that may constitute as evidence of crimes. What's a fishing expedition? You know, I mean, Fourth Amendment out the window as far as these guys are concerned. In their appeal, DOJ officials wrote, the government is thus unable to examine records that were commingled with materials bearing classification markings, including records that may shed light on, for example, how the materials bearing classification markings were transferred to plaintiffs' residence, how they were stored, and who may have accessed them. The records not marked as classified may also constitute evidence of potential violations. DOJ officials also stated in the filing that an expedited appeal, if successful, would allow the government to more quickly resume its full investigation without restraints on its review and use of evidence seized pursuant to a lawful search warrant. Trump has denied that any of the materials in his possession at Mar-a-Lago were classified. Special Master Judge Raymond Deary was given the task of reviewing approximately 11,000 records seized by the FBI during the raid of Trump's private residence. The Special Master and his team will review those records for executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, and for personal records. Deary's deadline to review the documents was extended to December 16th. Original deadline was November 30th. Deary has scheduled a status conference for October 6th. I think, uh, I think we've long passed October 6th. I mean, this is an article from October 11th. So, I mean, was there some kind of stealth edit here? It says published October 11th. Is this an update? Shannon, 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 you're going to make me check out the, uh, you're going to make me check out the, the, the Wayback Machine, aren't you? What do you mean he scheduled a, a hearing for October 6th? Are you kidding me? Because it says this article came out late afternoon, October 11th. So was there a stealth edit? No. Wayback Machine says it first dropped 
on October 11th. I don't know. I give up. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Um, that having all been said, our, uh, our next episode is going to be our first anniversary show. And we're pretty excited about that. Who knows? Might even have some greatest hits. In the meantime, it's time to say a hit of Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. All right, so this is a three-parter. You got Randy Weingarten. She is the head of one of the biggest teachers' unions in America over in Ukraine, right? She's tweeting over in Ukraine. I guess she wants to get in on some of the uh, money laundering, too. She says, woke up this AM to reports of disgusting Russian missile strikes in Kiev, Lviv, and other cities. Heading to the border now to assess the situation, this Russian attempt to frighten civilians and the effect on children who are learning online today is why this Ukraine trip is so important. So the great David Burge, the Iowa Hawk blog, responds, what's she going to do? Demand in-person war be suspended until everybody is masked and vaxxed? <laughs> <laughs> and then he has a quote from somebody he's just making up. Fred Plattsburgh, assistant district sales manager, Arby's, woke up this a.m. to reports of disgusting Russian, Russian missile strikes in Kiev, Lviv, and other cities, heading to the border now to assess the situation. <laughs> That's great. That's great. The tweet of the day is not always funny, but when I can find a funny one, I'll give it to you. Thank you so much again to uh, Mitch Ward and everybody at RedRiverYourWay.com. You've been listening to episode 258 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier of the 10th. And that's the way it is. Tuesday, October 11th, 2022.